Welcome to Great Minds Don't Think Alike on Sin Nation. It's our very, very first show. We're very excited. I'm Emirate and I'm joined by... Daniel. And um, today we're going to talk a bit about neurodiversity um, because that's what our show is about. It's about autism and neurodiversity. And we want to explain to you guys what that's all about. You can get in touch with us on our Great Minds Don't Think Like Facebook or we're on Twitter as well at Great Minds Sin. So we'd love to hear you. So we're going to go on to talk a bit about autism rights and neurodiversity in general because that's what we want with this show is to talk about autism rights and talk about topics that influence people with autism and also people who are neurodiverse. So it means that we're really looking into that other side and seeing what it's like from someone who has autism or someone who is autistic and um, all the the challenges but also the, the things that really get on people's you know, goat sometimes that frustrates them about the way that the world can relate to someone with autism. So we've got a couple of things here about autism rights. Did you want to take it away, Dan? Yeah, about um, the autism rights movement encourages autistic people, their caregivers and society to adopt the position of neurodiversity. Accepting autism as a variation in functioning rather than a mental disorder to be cured. Autism rights or neurodiversity advocates believe that the autism spectrum is genetic and should be accepted as a natural expression of the human genome. And the first sort of anti-cure or autism rights perspective sort of came about in the late 1890s. Uh, sorry, 1980s. <laughs> that was very wrong. 1980s. Um, so in 1992, um, the Autism Network International was founded. And this was the first um, sort of group that got together of um, autistic people uh, putting out their own thoughts on um on autism and, and who they were as people. And you sort of you might, you might think, why did it take so long? And we're going to hear from Donna Williams, one of the founders, um, and she she talks about the, the fact that it was uh, people got put in, in, in institutions and it was always from the perspective of parents or um, the sort of medical model, medical people, um, about autism and, and what that was and it wasn't even known as that back in the 1980s and it was there was very little understood about autism and there still is a lot of things that aren't understood um, but that was really why there was no one who was able to come out and say actually that's not what this is about you know I'm I, I'm an autistic person and I'm telling you um, these are the things that we're that we're on about you know this is what we want to project to the world and, and talk to people about so that was sort of when that first came around. Um, and curing and or treating autism, um, that's a controversial and politicised issue. Uh, doctors and scientists are not sure of the causes, as I said, of autism. Um, yet many organisations advocate researching a cure. Um, members of various autism rights organisations, however, view autism as, autism as a way of life rather than as a disease. 
unless they advocate acceptance over a search for a cure. And to add to that, a message I'm beginning to spread more and more is that um, don't eugenics us out or don't try to cure us. Exactly, Dan, because that's the thing. And it was really interesting. I was um, speaking to one of our other hosts the other day who unfortunately can't be here today. Hi, Julia. I know you're listening. Um, and I was talking to, we were talking about this very idea and it was really interesting the way that she talked about the difference between cures because there's, obviously there's people with physical disabilities and I know my sister has a physical disability and for her, you know, she sort of has that perspective of if I could walk for a day or if I could walk for a week, that would be a big thing for me. It's something I haven't ever experienced and that's a big deal. And it was really interesting because Julie was talking about the fact that for someone with Asperger's, it's not like a physical a disability. It's a way of thinking and it's a way of life. And to take that away from someone, to cure someone, um, takes away that, that whole way that you've been thinking your whole life. And it's like almost like speaking another language. And... Um, and people have differences in language and people have differences in the way that they interpret things. And it's the same uh, for an autistic person, the way that they think about things and the way that they understand things um, from other people always is going to vary. And to, to take that away from someone, that's a big thing. It's like taking away someone's natural tongue almost and saying, you know, you have to be this way and that's the only way you're allowed to be. Yeah, it's interesting. So a bit about neurodiversity. Basically, it's an approach to learning and disability that suggests that diverse neurological conditions appear as a result of normal variations in the human genome. So instead of looking at the human genome and saying, uh, no, that's wrong, um, that needs to be cured and eradicated, it's that it's just a, a normal variation. The variations occur, it's natural, it happens, and we need to accept those. Um, so it's that we need to recognise and, ex- and uh, respect that, that there are um, other variations of the human genome. And the differences can include things like dyspraxia, dyslexia, uh, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, uh, autism spectrum, um, and Tourette's syndrome. So there's all different, there's a wide, wide range, and we will continue to talk about that throughout this season as well. Um. There's a controversial movement due to people of the medical model of thought stating that some neurological differences can and should be treated, but rises a whole heap of cans of frames. Um, as far as tripping their person's identity is concerned and the new diversity movement is anti-cure pro-acceptance. And I think that's an idea we also need to move towards because there are a lot of people out there who think that there should be a cure and those those people always label um, the other school of, of, of thought as anti-cure. They're anti you know, helping people sort of thing. And it's like, well, it's not about that. It's actually about acceptance and respect and having that diversity. And speaking of helping people, like, I appreciated being pushed to my full potential and 
been encouraged to give life my best shot. I mean, I believe strongly in having strategies to help me live a more comfortable life side. Some of the difficulties I face can be lessened, but that's different to curing autism. We are speaking to Donna Williams. She is an autistic rights advocate and author, artist, singer-songwriter. What else are you? Oh, um, what else do I do? I think you've probably got it, mostly. Um, Educator? Speaker? Yeah, I've been a public speaker since 1994, an autism consultant since 1996, and I've sold my work around the world, art stuff. I've got a couple of songs in a TV series over in Asia. I've been a sculptor. Yeah, that's it. Oh, I love my cats. How's that? Um, that's that's, that's amazing. That is amazing. You are... It's a bit of a jack of all trades right there. I, I sometimes say I've got artism. I've heard that term before. Anyway, so first thing first, I want to ask you a question just about your involvement with Autistic Network International. Yeah. How did you get involved in that? We helped create it, so... It was me, Jim Sinclair, and um, a woman who at that time was Kathy Listener Grant, and so she's now Xenia Grant. And I had never met another adult Aughty woman, you see, because in those days Asperger's was not a diagnosis in the English language, and autism was thought to be 4 in 10,000 people. So this is back around in the early 1990s and I wanted to meet another woman with autism and so this woman had written to me and I flew over there to America, to St. Louis, stay at her house and she was so excited that she knew another adult who was in Kansas, who was Jim, and Jim was so excited he drove from Kansas to St. Louis to spend the weekend with me and Kathy and during this time we had an or treat. We had the very first or treat in the world <laughs> and we uh, Jim was saying he had this idea for uh, um, a group that would be a network and bring everybody together this is like pre-internet stuff we're in like snail mail time you know yeah pen pal paper lists you know and people were just starting to find each other around the world so we he, we're there and he says I've already got the name for it I'm going to call it autism network international and we said okay What's our jobs? And Jim said, okay, I'm going to be the one that creates the organization and how it runs. I said, great. And I said, Kathy, I'll be the PR person because I'm well known. People contact me and then you'll do the meet and greet. I'll send them to you and you can settle them in. And, and next thing, Jim had created a newsletter, paper newsletter. And um, our, the very first autistic run pen pal list of autis in the world because before that it was only ever run by parents and next thing it began to grow and grow countries began to create their own we moved into the internet era ANI went online different people became involved in ANI and uh, you know people took it over ran it all that stuff we sort of faded into not it faded into the background we you know, we moved on to our own interests in a way, and A and I took on a life of its own. As you were kind of alluding to before, you grew up in a time when there was not any awareness of autism. Yeah, that's right. How was that? Um, I was diagnosed in 1965. I was born in 63, and in those days, autism was called childhood psychosis. 
and that meant that I was in a three-day hospital assessment and they uh, gave me a lot of challenges, which, of course, being very feral and out of control and nonverbal, I ran around like a maniac and they diagnosed me as psychotic. So in the 60s, if you got this diagnosis, which essentially was a diagnosis of autism of the day, the goal was to stick you in an institution, like big Victorian institution, goodbye, see you later. And they did let these kids back out in the 80s, but they were essentially told they were psychotic. And it wasn't, um, it's only the kids who did, didn't get institutionalised. So people like me, another guy called, uh, a guy called Cashel Moore, who's an author in the autism world, um, quite well-known fantasy fiction writer, who is also diagnosed now on the spectrum. And people like us and Cathy and Jim, well, we didn't get institutionalised. But we, we were deemed, you know, disturbed and all that sort of stuff. So people basically didn't teach us very much. We got, um, you know, they'd make kids avoid us because, you know, hey, they might attack. They might attack themselves. And, you know, we weren't wanted in the classrooms. I, people didn't have much hope. It was very heavy-handed. So now we're more sensible. You know, we find a lot of ways to actually communicate with people who may be functionally nonverbal or um, people who have some verbal language but don't get what's going on in society or don't get how to read all the messages or are having confusing stuff from their senses. We can, you know, we, we get it now and we can put individualised programs in place and we understand diversity more now and we can, we're on the road to treating people with equality and humanity and inclusion. So... May I ask you, what do you think of the term ASD with all, I guess, all the diagnoses? I've been through phases. I refused it uh, a long, long time to say ASD, and I called it ASC, an autism spectrum condition. There are people who um, have parts of their autism fruit salad that are overwhelming, incredibly challenging, and they, they really want to overcome those. And I'm, I'm with them. I'm standing there with them. You don't want that part of your challenges? Work on it. Reduce it. You're not selling anybody out. And then other people for whom it's, it's, it's only stuff that they really value, that they feel works for them. And I'm happy to say that we all have very different experiences of our condition. Yeah. Um, also, the word disorder, I don't know why we have to be scared of it because disorder just means imbalance. It's a fact that non-autistic people are out of balance. Uh, you know, when ego runs amok and all, you know, all that stuff that they get good at because they can simultaneously process a sense of self and other so well that it develops into let's play hierarchy and ego stuff. Currently, the unemployment rate within the autism spectrum is very high. What do you think of this? Yeah, well, it's um, around 80 to 90%, which is absolutely shocking. And I think some of the reasons for that is social skills stuff, uh, inability to read facial expression, body language, intonation, difficulty with processing sense of self and sense of other at the same time. And so a lot of people don't get past the interview stage. I think that they need advocacy about that social side of it. You're not hiring someone for the social side of it. And so they shouldn't discriminate on that basis when they're hiring people and people should have an advocate who can stand up about that because we're whole packages that contain some challenges and some abilities. And sometimes you can't just wait for a job that only fits your abilities and your likes. 
It's going to fit you when you've got weaknesses. It's going to fit your challenges too. And that might mean you feel like you've been brought down a peg or whatever, but go for what's going to work for you consistently and long term. What sort of advice would you give to new parents? Oh, I think I think go to my website, uh, uh-huh. DonnaWilliams.net. Um, a lot of people get lost for hours in there, um, and it leads to a lot of resources, including what is the fruit salad model of autism, and that's an important one because when they realise their child's on the spectrum, they often run off to one-size-fits-all programs, and we are not one-size-fits-all people. Um. Thank you, Donna Williams, for your insightful interview and... So get on it. We're talking autism rights and neurodiversity. Today, well, I've actually read, had the pleasure of reading um, some of Donna Williams's, um books before and, yeah, it's interesting um, some of the sensory challenges she faces. As for me, living with autism, um, I personally um, would agree with Donna Williams in that I don't believe the term disorder should be used in the autism label because I don't believe autism is a disorder but I wouldn't call it an I don't tend to call it an ASC or autism spectrum condition either I just call it the autism spectrum Yeah, I found that really interesting when she was talking about that, how at first when um, ASD sort of came came about that sort of label, um, that she was wanting to not not think about and didn't want to associate with that terminology. And I think that over time that terminology has changed a lot. And I think it's different with everyone. I think everyone has a different way of relating to... um, to even just disability, like I know lots of people who say they're a wheelchair user or so say they are disabled or they're a person with a disability. And I know people who say, oh, I have, I'm a person with autism and people who say I'm autistic or I'm on the autism spectrum. Um, and I think it, it is that sort of personal choice as well and how you identify as a person. And I found that really interesting how she was talking about how she sort of came around to that idea and how she sort of thought, yeah, you know, we are we are disordered, we are d- different. And there's that whole point of owning that. And, it, you know, that was interesting to see her change from that and the, the growth from that and also the that there are other people out there as well who have different thoughts on that particular label and the way that it's used and the way that they identify was really interesting. Um, we are going to post that whole interview, hopefully very soon in the future, and she has some really interesting things to say about um, the fruit salad, as she was saying at the end there. Um, and it's sort of the fruit salad is all those different you know, pears and apples and there's a whole bunch of things tossed in there and mixed around and everyone has a different fruit salad and everyone's it's an individual thing. It's not one size fits all, as she was saying, um, because she was right in saying that you're a person first and 
you deserve to be treated as an individual and for people to understand and respect your differences but also your similarities and everyone has that and everyone deserves that respect and understanding. Yeah, I think too I can relate to her with employment especially in that um, for me I'm thankful to get in a workplace that um, where the director already knew me so I didn't have to prove my social skills but I even though I've got um, good social skills generally I believe I wonder how I would have gone with a traditional job interview um, and then funny thought I might remember Donna Williams presenting in Bendigo five years ago and she had a um, her husband was operating the data projector but um, he was like hidden behind the computer and when Donna wanted to press the next slide um, she would just say hand and a hand would pop up like a bu- puppet and press the next slide and <laughs> I thought that is um, so cool. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome, yeah. I have to admit. Dad, we've got a really special segment. Our first segment like this. Can you, you want to explain what it is? Um, it's called Mythbusters, where we explain myths about, um, or dispel myths about autism and neurodiversity. So we're busting the myth that people with autism on the autism spectrum have no empathy. Yeah, well, guess what the reality is? Um, people on the autism spectrum, including myself, may come across as blunt and struggle to understand what other people a thinking and feeling. Various websites, however, suggest that we are actually capable of displaying empathy and that we can feel so overwhelmed that we struggle to know how to display our empathy for others. I've had a personal experience where I've seen someone get hurt and I've wanted to help but don't know how to respond. Or sometimes I've laughed inappropriately, not because I've um, had, uh, not because of a malicious intent, but more big out of nervousness. Here are some examples about how empathy can be played out by someone on the autism spectrum. 
A few years ago, I received a great big hug from someone who is non-verbal and has autism. This hug was so powerful. Fellow people on the autism spectrum have offered me support when I felt frustrated, especially when I've had a meltdown. And on the recent ICANN camp for people on the autism spectrum, which this shows an initiative of the ICANN network, and it was run primarily by people on the autism spectrum, we needed to help someone whose van was broken down. A group of us on the spectrum helped to push the van out of a bog, which goes to show that people with autism do in fact have empathy. And I think that's that myth busted. That was, you know, taste my dirt. You are so wrong. Like, there you go, guys. That's the truth of it. That's the reality. Right from Dan's mouth, though. He knows all about it. And that some of those experiences that when you said that you had um, laughed inappropriately, I actually have a friend who does that. Mm. And she is, she is an autistic. She has cerebral palsy. But she is actually training to be a social worker and she was really nervous that she was going to hear a horrible story mm. and then laugh. And it is it is out of that stress and out of not not sure how to react to something. And, you know, we've been in situations where, um, for instance, we went out one night and this guy suddenly got bashed near us at this club and she was laughing and... It's not the fact that it was funny. She was like, I just don't know how else to express my shock than mm. to laugh. And, yeah, there, there's, there's that idea that you're acting, you're, you know, acting inappropriately and you're laughing because of, you know, that you're autistic or because of your condition, as some would say. But that's not true. It happens to all different people. I've laughed inappropriately as well. And it's just that sometimes it's that natural response that that happens. Or sometimes it's even the tone of someone's voice to me or the sound of a siren that's triggered, like the high-pitched sound that's triggered the laugh. So we're coming off our little myth buster there in which we busted the myth that people with autism, people on the autism spectrum, can't feel empathy, don't have empathy. And it's just not true. The way that you express empathy isn't the same for everyone. And that's what we were discussing, we were talking about, that it's not always the same and that, you know, we were talking about laughing in particular and how that can be seen as an inappropriate response to something serious and how it doesn't always come from um, trying to be malicious um, it's just that that feeling of I don't know how else to express this I'm not sure what to do in this situation and that can be stressful and it can be stressful for anyone when you come into a tough situation and you don't know what to do you don't know how to comfort that person or talk to that person and you can feel um, you can feel you know, upset for them and bad for them and you can understand what they're going through. 
Um, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, the way that it comes across doesn't always appear genuine. And there's that, therefore, there comes that idea that you therefore don't have empathy because you don't, you're not relating like everyone else. And just because you relate differently doesn't mean you suddenly can't, you can't do something, you can't feel. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, but I, um, for one, like, for me, social justice is a passion, like, um, I've volunteered for, um, organisations such as St Finney's and I don't think I'd be doing that if I didn't have empathy um, nor would I um, yeah be um, yeah, nor would I be thinking about the needs of other people on the street or even consider presenting on this radio show and advocating for the rights of other people with autism if I didn't have empathy. Exactly, and, you know, empathy also leads into understanding and um, knowing where that person is coming from. So the thing is that clearly, Dan, you understand what how you feel about a, a topic and you understand how you feel about something and then but you also understand what other people feel about that particular thing and you you can um move forward with that and you can talk about that and discuss that and for some reason there is that idea out there that you can't do that mm. because you have autism and like we were talking before with the fruit salad everyone is different everyone has a different way of relating to things and everyone has um different barriers and then different um things that they can do and it's the same with everyone everyone is basically a fruit salad in that in that way of thinking so yeah just because you've been labeled as being on the autism spectrum doesn't suddenly mean that you can't feel and you can't understand and you can't think about social issues and um and get across your thoughts on that issue yeah exactly right um yeah, about, um, That's think, it, yeah. isn't it, for today's show. That was the very first Great Minds Don't Think Alike. That was so exciting. We did it. We did it. It's so exciting. I can't wait now. I can't wait for the rest of the season. Neither we, can I. We do have Facebook. It's Great Minds Don't Think Alike. And, of course, lovely Twitter. It's Great Minds Sin. Um, tune in next week. The great minds don't think alike.